I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. It goes without saying, nearly every sector globally has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. But for few sectors are those effects more evident than for universities. From admissions to in-person classes to college sports, there's hardly an element of the experience that hasn't had to pivot quickly. But what about endowment investing? As universities face untold economic uncertainties and challenges, what impact has it had on the approach endowments take? Put differently, have the characteristics that make endowment investing different from time horizons to information access and beyond been helpful in navigating these new challenges? Daniel Fader is one to ask. Dan is a managing director at the University of Michigan Investment Office and leads the endowments investments in private equity and venture capital. Prior to joining Michigan, Dan was the Managing Director of Private Markets at the Washington University Investment Management Company. Previously, among other roles, Fader served as Managing Director of Private Markets for the Sequoia Capital Heritage Fund, Senior Investment Manager in the Endowment Services Area at TIAA CREF, and Managing Director at Princeton University Investment Company. Before my conversation with Dan, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Here's my conversation with Dan Fader. Dan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me here, Chris. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I am too. Let's start with the overview. What's the current state of endowment investing? Before I get into it, I just want to make sure I just say one thing, which is I think is really, really important. The world in which you know we're talking about, which is endowment investing, is just a very small corner of the world. It's a very small corner of the economic markets, and it's a very small corner of what's going on generally. And um, I just feel like it, I would be remiss in not uh, mentioning the fact that you know, the loss of lives, the impact on lives, livelihoods, relationships, access to health care, mental health, education, and really every facet of life that we're, we're navigating right now as a result of the impact of COVID-19 are just um, you know, front and center. And so the, you know, the question around what's the impact uh, or what's the state of endowment investing today, I want to just make sure that I put that in proper context. Yeah, in, indeed. Ne- nearly everything these days needs to have uh, context and perspective. And uh, thank you for providing some. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's certainly, I, f- I feel like what we do in managing an endowment at the University of Michigan, and I'm, I'm sure anyone who manages endowments uh, feels the same way, which is this is important work because we're supporting institutions that are very important, especially today. And so the the state of endowment investing today, in many ways, is really the same as it ever was. We have the same objectives that we've had, all, as always. The investment model or the endowment model is more or less the same with a, a, a very large caveat attached to that, which is there is no single endowment model of investing. We have the same objectives for the most part, and those are maintaining purchasing power of our institutions, providing uh, some investment gains to support spending of the institutions. And you know, if we do a good job providing a real return above spending and, and purchasing power if we can. 
So in many ways, the state of endowment investing today is really the same as it ever was. The events of COVID-19 and the, the impact of COVID-19 have um, changed some things in, in very important ways. And one of the things that it has changed or created a heightened awareness about is the fact that all colleges and universities are not the same operating businesses. Yeah. They don't operate in the same way. And if we look back over the past 20 years, we've had, you know, now this is our third major dislocation. We had the TMT bust in 2000, and then we had the global financial crisis in 2008 and into 2009. And now we have, and we, we continue to have, the dislocations related to the COVID-19 pandemic. I know it's dangerous to say this time is different because whenever uh, someone says something like that, they're proved wrong. But I really do think this is different in some important ways. Those prior two dislocations were really about what happened in the, the financial markets. And what's happening today is a terrible set of events that are having a, a great impact on the real economy, not just the, the capital markets. And that is especially true when we look at the impact on endowments and more broadly on the institutions that we support, you know, the colleges and universities for whom we work. Why do the real economy effects have a bigger impact than just market effects? Because this is what, what happens in real life. So at a a college or university, uh, one thing that colleges and universities have in common is that we are gathering businesses. We put people together. We put people together in many, many different ways. So we put them together in classrooms, in dormitories, in research facilities, in hospitals, in fraternities, and sports venues. And the activities that happen on the campus of a large research university are very different than what takes place in a small liberal arts college. The activities in a, uh, at a college or university that's located in a rural area are very different from uh, one that's located in an urban area. And so that really, it doesn't trickle down. It's, it, it's part of what we do as, as an endowment. And in those prior two dislocations, we were all more or less affected in similar ways. Mm. But in this one, the actual activities and the, um, the business that takes place on a college or university campus the impacts have just been very different across institutions. And I know that that occurs, and you mentioned it, it occurs in every aspect of the university life, in the classrooms, in the neighboring businesses, but being very focused on where you are and what institution you work at, is there a more visual representation of the impact than seeing what feels like a couple of hundred people sitting in the big house in Michigan Stadium for the football games? I mean, watching it on TV, it's just it is so stark and it's not the only place. Obviously, it's basically every uh, stadium that we, that we look at. But given the fact that you are at University of Michigan and that that stadium is such an iconic place. I've seen it a few times on TV. Ed, that is just a visual reminder of exactly what you're talking about. Yes, it, it, it certainly is. The absence of, of that activity is um, is tangible. And on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, when I go out for a run in Ann Arbor, uh, I see it every time I go outside, and especially if I run anywhere near where the uh, the medical center is. Mm. Uh, the uh, it's just a, a really stark reminder of what, what it is that's going on here and what it is we're facing when you go past or around a medical facility or through the center of town, which is which is empty, or on a Saturday when there's supposed to be a game and, and nobody's around. 
Um, and you know that those are all great and important tangible reminders, and they are reminders of things that we ought to have in mind day to day as we manage an endowment. And going from the 20,000 foot or 30,000 foot level down to the very granular of what happens or how we think about investing an endowment program. Yes, please. The fact that the activities on campus from one university to another, one college to, to another are different, do serve as reminders that the way we invest also ought to reflect the institution in, in many ways. How do you mean? So in portfolio management, one way that I think is really important is that colleges and universities generally have the same three advantages in capital markets. And those three advantages are an ability to have a long time horizon. We have access to information and people that is differentiated from other institutional investors. And we have access to opportunities that are unique to our institutions. And it is important to keep those in mind, I think, in how we go about investing and how we go about designing our portfolios. Because having even a single advantage in the capital markets is just a great and valuable thing. And we have three of them. And so we ought to be thinking about how do we apply those advantages in a way that can advance those three objectives of our investment programs uh, in the greatest way possible. And um, just to bring some, uh, I guess, context to that, uh, in the case of a large research university, we have, by definition, um, a lot of research, a lot of innovation going on here at campus. Uh, we invest in venture capital funds, and we hope we're investing with the very best uh, VCs in the industry. And we can make ourselves a better partner to those VCs by creating connectivity between what happens here on campus in the area of research or in tech transfer with what our partners are trying to do as investors. And that that kind of connectivity works or can work in really powerful ways in both directions. And it, um, it puts us in a position where we can have access to investment opportunities that other people, other institutions don't have. And it gives us insights into markets that others simply don't have. And so how do we apply those? And where do we apply those? And where can we get the greatest bang for the buck, so to speak, um, in going after um, opportunities where um, we can um, make uh, returns that are um, at least maybe not generally available or just hard to achieve uh, by institutional investors. And that really does speak, though, to what are the unique attributes of each of our institutions in doing that. Are the advantages even greater now, or are they somehow diminished slightly because of the crisis? The advantages that, that I outlined uh, were clearly there before uh, the COVID pandemic. They were there before the global financial crisis, and they were there before the TMT bust. Um, and I think the the change is how we go about applying those, or the the impact is how we how we can go about applying those to what we do day to day. And I think you know, on balance, it may sound um, naive to say so, but I don't I don't think that they've changed all that much. I think that perhaps 
uh, we have a greater awareness of the role of our institutions in how we go about forming our portfolios and managing them. And that may be, it's a very, very small silver lining to a cloud. I mean, this is not a case where you know, the, the silver lining is as large as the cloud. This is a mm. case where the, the silver linings are way smaller than the size of the cloud. But one of the, uh, the positives that we're uh, observing right now is the fact that we work um, with the university uh, around uh, how all this comes together, how it all fits together, is something that is just really important. It's not something we've lost sight of, but it's something that has taken on just um, uh, massive importance. And it's, um, you know, I think it's just a very, very small silver lining to this cloud that, you know, going forward, um, there's, I would think there'll be more integration, more, um, more dialogue across institutions, not just ours, but all colleges and universities about how endowments and endowment-like assets of universities and colleges fit together with working capital and uh, tuition inflows and research dollar in, inflows and so forth. What about governance? How, how has the pandemic added anything to your governance process, your approach? Um, have you had to consider it differently? Or uh, you, from the different perspective, has it proven out? Have you kind of felt helpfully, wow, uh, we had pretty good governance in place and it was in place exactly for circumstances like this? I can only speak from the perspective of where I sit. And you know, without a doubt, the COVID-19 crisis has pressure tested any number of aspects of how we do business at a university and certainly how we do business as an endowment. And we've been, we're just very fortunate. And uh, I can speak to our experience here, but I, one of the things that really drew me to endowment investing in the first place was exactly the topic of governance. And if done properly, endowments and foundations are really uh, in a special place uh, with respect to doing investing well. We have far fewer agency issues than you would expect to see at a, a corporate investor or any place where interests of the individuals um, can override the interests of the institution. We have people around the program, whether they are advisors or alums or um, you know, people within the administration and, and people within the investment office who are involved because they really do have a deep, um, a deep affinity and a lot of um, sort of personal um, reward wrapped up in the success of the institution. And so when you have that, it really helps clarify how you make decisions and it makes um, investment decisions a lot more rational and um sensible than you know you might see in places that have uh, you know more agency issues running around them what what about sector views are, are you do you have a, a stronger uh, affection for interest in various sectors 
Um, has that changed as a result of the crisis? Or are you kind of sector neutral and instead you look to utilize, leverage the advantages that you spoke about earlier, regardless of what sector that impacts? Well, across an endowment, we, we can't or we shouldn't have a, a point of view that one sector or another is going to dominate everything else. Um, we want to have a diversified portfolio. We want to have a number of drivers of return that allow us to have both intergenerational equity um, with respect to spending and support of of the university, um, while also, you know, generating returns that, you know, in some sense, we should have less sensitivity around volatility for. Uh, there are segments of the portfolio where, where sectors uh, do figure more prominently, and they are in uh, the areas where we do uh, much more bottom-up or bottom-up oriented investing. And the clearest case of that would be in venture capital, I think. Hmm. And so in the case of venture capital, um, we are in the midst, I believe, and we can debate this, but I think the the facts are, are fairly compelling around it, that we are in the midst of something that feels like an industrial revolution. It's a technology-driven industrial revolution. And in the venture capital part of the portfolio, we are trying to invest into that in very real ways. And this goes also back to some of our advantages, I think, that we have as an investor. So as a, uh, a research university where we have access to world-class individuals in the research function through our tech transfer across the university, we, we have an ability to diligence ideas. Uh, we also have a vast network of loyal alums and, and networks of, of people who come from our, our business partners, meaning our fund managers, that can help us navigate places to invest that we think are really compelling in a very much a bottom-up way. So some of the areas that uh, have been really productive for us and I think are going to be hugely productive going forward involve new advances around drug discovery and life sciences advances. We've made some investments that way too early to de declare victory or defeat, but I think we're, we're positioned extremely well and we're positioned extremely well because we have an ability to think about these things in a bottom-up way that makes a lot of sense. And then I guess more broadly, we think opportunistically, especially in the, the area of the portfolio, as I said, that's um, they're probably more over on the private equity and venture side where we're, we're much more bottom up, but we think opportunistically across the portfolio and things just come our way, I guess, because we look for them, but also because they do come our way and they can come in any number of packages and that can be a little bit from anywhere. So not sector specific, but I'd say, you know, one area where we, we really do have a conscious effort in, in terms of sector is around technology and innovation, especially in the venture end of the portfolio. That's where we really want to be long innovation. Yeah, well, it, it makes sense um, for all sorts of reasons, uh, including, of course, uh, one of those advantages you mentioned, um, you know, that the access to cutting edge uh, ideas and insights that would come from uh, a university and, and a university of like, like University of Michigan. I, I just want to be really clear, though, on, on one point that you made earlier, Dan, under no circumstances would I be looking to debate with you in the first place, I, you know, I've no, you know, I would simply lose. So that's not something I would ever even think about doing. Thank you for the warning. But to your specific point, I would never even debate that. I, I totally agree. 
Um, it does feel like an industrial revolution. And uh, as opposed to a debate, that, that actually might be something for a future conversation um, because that is – we're in the middle of a massive change, aren't we? I'm convinced we are. One of our partners, one of our venture capital fund managers, had a, a little snippet that I thought was really interesting. And he said that during the Industrial Revolution that we would refer to, or when the electrification of industry was taking place, there were people in companies called you know, chief electrical officers. And we don't have mm. that anymore. Mm, no. um, and now we have chief technology officers. And his point was, we look forward a bit. We probably won't have chief technology officers. That will just be part of what we do. And it is part of what we do. It really is. It's not different this time. There's an innovation cycle that's happening right now. And the amount of innovation, the amount of disruption that's occurring right now is um, is formidable. It's exciting. It's also um, a little bit scary in some ways, but it is, it is exciting as an investor. So two thoughts to end the uh, – to start to close out the conversation. One is picking up on the point that you just were making – you have spoken previously, you have written previously about the benefits of investing into uncertainty. Uh, of course, part of me wonders if you oughtn't be careful what you ask for. We've had plenty of uncertainty. But would you explain again your philosophy for listeners and tell us how it's currently holding up? Well, I'd love to explain my thesis, but my thesis is really stolen from an economist named Frank Knight. So I've got to give credit where credit is due. And Frank Knight in the early 1900s wrote a dissertation for his economics PhD, which is now published as a book called uh, Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit. And the proposition there is that there is a big difference between risk and uncertainty. And uncertainty is really the realm of things that are not known and are not knowable. And risk is relates to looking at data sets or information from the past and creating a point of view of the future. And what the power of uncertainty provides, I think, is that if one is able to invest into conditions in which others don't know something and can't know them and can do so well and consistently, that durable profits ought to result. And so what does that mean? In, in the realm of venture capital, it means that if you are a venture capitalist, and you have access to an entrepreneur or a, or a founder who's come up with a business idea or an innovation that is not known to the rest of the world and is not knowable to the rest of the world. And you as a venture capitalist are able to invest sensibly in that idea. And you can do that sort of thing repeatedly. Then you, you ought to have the opportunity to generate real economic profit on a, on a consistent basis. And, that's what we're trying to do in the realm of venture capital. It's what I try to do when we're investing in areas where we can put those three advantages that an endowment or an endowment related to a college or university has, which are access to information and access to people that others don't have. And where time horizon comes into play with all that is that when we invest into those sorts of opportunities, they are by definition illiquid. They have to be. If something is not understood or the attributes of that investment are not really knowable and it will take time for the goodness of those ideas to become known or knowable by others, well, they are illiquid until that happens. And so 
the idea of investing into uncertainty, I think, is just very, very powerful. Mm. Uh, we have a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. Um, and I certainly wouldn't advocate investing in, into those realms because we don't have any advantages in understanding what's happening. We do have some advantages in understanding uncertainty better than others in some areas. And that's where I try to focus some of my time and attention, uh, particularly in private equity and venture capital. To close out, Dan, as you do look towards 2021, how are you framing your thinking? Is there anything that you are viewing opportunistically? Any risks that we haven't discussed that you are particularly wary of? Uh, how do you view the year? Well, I'll tell you one thing that, uh, that does worry me, and um, it's ketchup. It's ketchup because when I was growing up, there was an ad campaign that Heinz had on television for its ketchup. And the tagline of it was anticipation. And the idea was that you turn this ketchup bottle over if it's if it's a high quality ketchup made by Heinz. And <laughs> um, you know, it would take a long time to come out. And it's okay because anticipation is a wonderful thing. If what comes out is, is it's as delicious as Heinz yeah. ketchup, I understand. Yes. So why do I worry about ketchup? Well, we've we've had a really good run in some areas of the portfolio, and especially in venture capital and in technology-based businesses that have stayed private for a long time, and they've developed in many cases into becoming really substantial businesses, but they're illiquid, and uh, we have more and more of those, and we have a backlog of those, and mm. uh, those are the catch-up in our bottle. The problem is, and the thing that I worry about, is the aperture of the opening just doesn't change. And we're happy to, to take a long-term view of things and be a liquid up to a point. Uh, but I do worry that if we get too much ketchup in the bottle, um, it's going to be a problem. And, you know, we can shake the bottle and we can do all sorts of stuff to try to get the, the ketchup out. But the opening stays the same size. And um, even banging on the number 57, which is supposed to be the magical thing. It is. It, it's the key. It. I've, I've won plenty of bets by uh, hit, banging on the 57 on the side of a Heinz ketchup bottle. But, but what does worry me a bit is that you know we get a backup of things that really ought to be become liquid. And that, that exercise in and of itself in how things become liquid, how, how value is realized, is important. And if there's anything that's on my mind right now, it's how do we manage uh, the portfolio in parallel with this process of seeing good companies and great companies uh, become public or become acquired so we have room to make more investments so that we can participate in what we think are great opportunities where we can be long innovation again. Do you have any finger on the pulse as you look at IPO offerings uh, any acquisitions that are kind of occurring, the pace of things over the last weeks and, and anything you're hearing in terms of the maybe Q1, anything that's giving you a sense of the uh, finger on the pulse of that pace? Nothing that's unique uh, other than to say that a lot of people in the market think that the opportunity to get companies public one way or the other or uh, realize value, there's a lot of depth to that. And I think there is a lot of depth to that uh, up to a point. So by my comments, I'm not trying to leave you with the impression that I think we're, uh, we're in a lot of trouble. I just worry that uh, we do perhaps have too much of a good thing in mm -hmm. terms of the you know, companies that are uh, on the precipice of 
becoming public or where we can start realizing some of our value. Excellent. Well, we'll uh, look forward to that. We will see what happens, and we will all keep banging on the 57 of the Heinz ketchup bottle and hope that it it brings the rewards that sit inside the bottle. Dan, thank you. Thank you for uh, your time. Thank you for your views, and uh, thank you for uh, sharing all of that with us. Oh, thanks for making time to speak with me. It's been a real pleasure. 